0: It's 4th Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. I'm Marcus Costello. Coming up, should we be concerned that the media isn't giving balanced reporting on the Department of Immigration and Border Protection? Or more concerned that the department has launched their own Good News podcast? And speaking of Peter Dutton's claims of left-wing media bias, was the Four Corners episode about children in detention on Nauru activist journalism? Plus, bias at the other end of the spectrum on the other side of the world was Bashar al-Assad's weekend conference in Syria, an attempt to whitewash war crimes. Joining me in the studio from the ABC's Four Corners is Debbie Whitpot. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Marcus. And freelance writer and Crikey's Sydney correspondent, Marco Savile. Hi, Margot. Hi, Marcus. And joining us on the line from Canberra is political reporter for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, Fergus Hunter. Hi, Fergus. Good evening. Before we get underway, a shout out to all of our listeners who became supporters during our supporter drive over the last fortnight. We really couldn't do what we do without you. Of course, if you'd like to become a supporter of 2SER, you still can. So just head to supporter.2SER.com. All right, let's get into it. There's somewhere around 300,000 podcasts in the iTunes store. Some of them, many of them, are pretty niche. There's a podcast that tells deliberately boring stories to put you to sleep at night. And as of last month, the Department of Immigration and Border Protection now has a podcast to complement their very active social media offerings. Let's have a listen. Australian Border Force Cutter, Cape
1: Levy. Australian Border Force Cutter, Cape Levy. This is Border Force 112. Be aware... Hello and welcome to the Australian Border Force podcast, the first in a series bringing you the latest news and information from the operational arm of the Department of Immigration and Border Protection.
2: Over the past month, the Australian Border Force has made a number of significant drug seizures, among other operational highlights. Communications Officer Matt Waddell explains. It's been a very busy month for Australian Border Force officers at our airports, at our seaports, indeed on duty all over the country. We started the month with the seizure of 154 kilograms of methamphetamine concealed in timber logs in sea cargo coming in through the port of Melbourne. A number of individuals are currently facing court in relation to that matter. We've also had almost 100 kilos of cocaine seized from a cruise ship in Sydney Harbour, the largest ever seizure of drugs from a cruise ship in Australian waters ever. Uh, and an interesting one, we had uh, the seizure of up to 200 kilos of methamphetamine, concealed of all things in genes. So tell me, how do you conceal drugs in jeans? Oh, this was an interesting one. It was an air cargo shipment. Border Force officers look at air cargo, sea cargo, post. This particular shipment, uh, in, in amongst the genes, they'd concealed a number of bags, we'll allege in court, that had concealed the actual drugs themselves. Perhaps in the hope that uh, Border Force officers wouldn't look at a shipment of clothing, but uh, we risk assess all shipments coming into the country and where we've got a concern, as we did have in this case, we'll investigate and uh, there's a number of individuals who are now facing court and will have to uh, answer for their uh, alleged actions in relation to this import.
0: So there you go, drug smugglers, you know where not to hide your drugs. Immigration Minister Peter Dutton said his agency intends to, quote, get the facts out there because sometimes, particularly through some of the left wing media outlets, Border Force gets a pretty rough time. Border Security, the Channel 7 TV show, cops criticism for stereotyping and mischaracterising visitors to Australia and for whipping up racist sentiment. But the Border Force podcast takes a different approach. Good news stories. In the first episode, we learn how Border Force is stopping drug smuggling, saving dolphins and adopting puppies. Yes, Border Force adopts out puppies a bit like guide dogs until they're old enough to be trained. Fergus, everyone loves puppies, but what kind of listener do you think Border Force is targeting with this podcast?
1: Well, look, it's hard to know, isn't it? I mean, that broadly that's one of the major barriers that podcasts face, isn't it? Getting an audience um, and, you know, to do that, to get the audience, you need, either need to have amazing content and or, you know, a big brand recognition for that quality content. And and no one associates the Department of Immigration and Border Protection with entertaining podcast content. So apart from, you know, journalists and, and um, public public servants and, People really interested in public policy, you know, some of the political class, that tiny market. You know, who's going to listen? What regular people will listen to a government department podcast?
0: Well, so far they've copped it pretty sweet in the iTunes reviews. They're um, none too inspiring, but they're pretty funny. Debbie, have you had a chance to listen to the first episode?
3: Look, I did. I have to confess that I didn't get the whole way through. Um,
0: Well, that itself is quite telling. (laughs)
3: Um, It is hard to know who it would be made for. But, you know, look... That doesn't. That's no reason not to have it. And I'm sure there'll be someone, you know. It's, it's a, a wonderful world. I'm sure there'll be someone out there. I think it, it lacks that excitement that was in the TV program where you had that idea that people were being caught red-handed doing something. And I was thinking maybe they could make it more interesting if they actually went out on patrol where they're turning back the boats and they could um, do a sort of live broadcast there. Maybe that would be really good.
0: However... I, it has been said that no on-water matters will be divulged.
3: They've said that as part of that. Oh, well, that sort of does take a a major plank out of the dramatic possibility. Um, (laughs) Look, I'm sure some people will find it interesting. Maybe it'll get a cult following. I gave it one and a half stars on iTunes. I thought it was rubbish, actually. You
0: gave it a legitimate review on iTunes? Yeah, I just think if
4: it takes 82 well-paid public servants to make that podcast... You know, Lee Sales and Annabelle Crabb should be paid more, really. Two people in the ABC breastfeeding room can produce Chat 10 Looks 3, and it's a five-star program. Yeah, I was going to it ask... It doesn't have
0: quite the pizzazz, though. You know, there's, there's. I was tapping my feet under the desk when I was listening to that intro before. Soon to come is the Border
1: Force uh, cooking show. <laughs> um,
4: exactly. And I think the extreme TV... Extreme cooking, yeah. I think the secret to the TV program, I've only seen one of the episodes, was buff men in blue uniforms and dogs. You know, that that is obviously... Dogs are good. Dog, dogs, dogs are, are good. good. But, we but having,
0: did have dogs on the first episode, there though. There were dogs.
4: Of the podcast. There were puppies. But people talking yeah. about dogs oh, is I not see the dogs. very interesting.
3: I was wondering how that 82 staff compares to, say, the Prime Minister's Department in terms of media staff. From memory,
1: was, the, um, the Department's communication staff is quite... Large. Um, and I mean, I think the, the thing that people have always noted about that is that, you know, obviously the Department of Immigration and, and its policies have been characterized by secrecy and, and not putting much information out there. So people always kind of raise their eyebrows when they hear that they've got all these communication stuff.
0: Well, that's right. So Dutton claims the podcast to expand the public's understanding of what Waterforce does, but is it disingenuous to discuss everything but? on Water Matters if the plight of people seeking asylum is what the public wants to know more about.
1: Well, you know, I think it's probably true that with good reason, you know, one aspect of the Department and, and Border Forces work um, attracts almost 100% of the attention. That, so maybe there's there's something in them uh, wanting to educate people about all the other things they do, which they legitimately do, many other things. Um, but. It does come in that context, right, of uh, this, this information-starved environment where, you know, Operation Sovereign Borders and, and our border control regime and Manus and Nauru and Christmas Island and all of these policies are shrouded in secrecy. Uh, the government does not want information getting out to journalists, getting out to the public on various things. So that context kind of is the one that raises eyebrows with regard to the book, podcast.
0: Dutton has said, though, that this podcast has come about as a counter-attack, if you will, to the left-wing media bias on the reporting of asylum seekers. So if he sees that as biased, shouldn't he then speak on that same topic to balance it rather than speaking on a completely different topic?
4: I assumed he balanced it by leaking to News Limited. I mean, I don't see why they need a podcast. <laughs>
0: So the Immigration Department said the podcast is a way to speak directly to the public, to be more transparent. But it's just been revealed in an email mistakenly sent to a Guardian journalist that some people in the department have suggested putting a freeze on freedom of information requests. Does that strike anyone as ironic?
3: Well, I mean, it's like the elephant in the room that you were just referring to. So, you know, we can talk about the puppies, but we can't talk about um, the islands. We can't talk about the refugees. And, I mean, that's okay. It's a big department. It's got a lot of things going on. Um, the fact that they're freezing an FOI request is – it's a bit embarrassing that that got out. It's not very surprising. Um, is it ironic? Well, I think the whole situation is ironic, really. Yeah, I a... mean,
0: you could say that in leaking, in in accidentally transmitting that email, that's the height of transparency, right?
3: Well, that's right, and <laughs> and I mean, and you also had um, the situation where they looked into and investigated whether there was anything in the Nauru files and whether they were legitimate. Looked into them that themselves and found that they weren't anything to worry about. So, I mean, where where does the irony end? It's, It's sort of, it's, we all know it's a difficult situation and there are obviously some things they want to talk about, some things they don't want to talk about, and I think that's pretty obvious to everyone, really.
0: What do you make of journalist Chris Kenny's claim that the media is out of step with the broader public who says they support offshore processing, Marco?
4: Um, well, I've, I've never agreed with Chris Kenny in the past, but I think this one actually has a ring of truth about it. If you see um, the survey that came out from Essential Media that Peter Lewis wrote up last uh, last month, and you know he said he was so surprised by the result that 49% of the respondents said that they were against immigration and that they wanted to stop Muslim immigration, that he redid it and redid it until he was happy that his methodology was correct. And I think, um, you know, I, I think that's probably right. And I think we have to look at ways of um, trying to change those attitudes without saying simply you're wrong or you're a racist.
0: Doesn't it mean then that we need to have a deeper conversation about it rather than being tight-lipped and speaking about other topics if there's a podcast devoted to the Department of Immigration and Border Protection?
4: Yes. No, no, I completely yeah. agree. And it's it's hard to explain to the respondents that, you know... It's income inequality and it's, it's job insecurity and it's government policies over the last 30 years that have, you know, ripped out the middle class and taken working class jobs offshore, etc. You know, that, that's too complicated and it's easy for people like Chris Kenny to say, you know, that it's left-wing bias.
0: You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Marcus Costello, and I'm speaking to Debbie Whitmont, Margot Saville and Fergus Hunter. Last month, the ABC's Four Corners aired The Forgotten Children. It was an investigation into the plight of the 128 refugee children on Nauru. Barred from access to Nauru, the show relied on a third-party camera operator to film phone interviews with some of the children before smuggling the footage to Australia. In those interviews, we heard children discuss suicidal thoughts and display evidence of self-harm. Immigration Minister Peter Dutton was, however, highly critical of the episode. But the ABC has defended the program as, quote, accurate, well-researched and well-produced. The reporter for The Forgotten Children, Debbie Whitmont, is here in the studio with me now. Debbie, Four Corners, has been accused of campaigning against the government and telling lies. Mr Dutton has said, quote, the lunatics have completely taken over and described your work as shabby journalism. How does that make you feel?
3: How does it make me feel? Um, Look, I think what I really feel about this is uh, it's very disappointing that the issue at the heart of the program was buried in this sort of criticism, and I felt really bad for the young people that we spoke to, who are, they're really very smart, they follow the Australian media, they know what's going on. And I actually felt awful that the response to this program, rather than to look at the concerns they had raised or anything that they had said, was to criticise us and the ABC. I sort of felt quite ashamed by that. So, I mean, that's not the first time this has happened, but I think that is the most disappointing thing. And so, you know, the real issue is that you can attack the messenger and I don't think there really was much in that attack, which is why it was called shabby rather than anything specific. Um, But it doesn't take away from the fact that there was a real issue at the heart of it and that that didn't get discussed.
0: Margaret, did you have an opportunity to see the program?
4: Yes, yes, of course. Um, I thought it was absolutely disgraceful that the government somehow thinks it's okay to have children feeling suicidal and locked up um, in despair um, on Manus and Nauru and, you know, their only response is to criticise the ABC. I think that's a disgrace.
1: Fergus? Well, look, I mean, it's it's more excellent work from Four Corners and, as you know, just more great work from the ABC and, of course, Fairfax and The Guardian are doing lots of important work on, on finding out details about what is going on, uh, within the, you know, border protection policies, uh, and that often gets criticized by, by Minister Dutton, Minister Dutton and others. Um, it's, you know, often, uh, not, not, uh, backed up by fact, but it's always going to be criticized by them.
0: So does anyone think that there's any validity in the coalition's sustained attack on the ABC's asylum seeker coverage? I'll, uh, I'll leave that to Margot and Fergus to comment on, given that we have ABC (laughs) rep.
4: I may be a little biased on that one. (laughs) Go for it. Um, I think it's so important for all media to um, upset the government of the day. You know, and Paul Keating was always very upset with the ABC and both sides of politics. And I think it's our job. I think it's very important. So, you know, no, that doesn't bother me.
3: It's true. It is from both sides. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Vegas. Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, it's... Oh, no, I've just lost my train of thought. No, that's, I've got it back. <laughs> I can't think of anything really uh, that the ABC and others have done uh, that of, of those out, uh, outlets that we mentioned, but especially the ABC that kind of smacks of of a, a one-eyed activist approach to this. The problem is that critics of this coverage conflate, about, you know, uh, opposing some kind of policy with journalism that uncovers the gory details of the consequences of that policy, which is, you know, they're just not the same thing. Um, now, maybe there are some legitimate criticisms of, or, or legitimate arguments to be had about some of the execution of some of these things. Um, obviously, we've, there's been that stuff about, you know, going for comment and stuff, which which I'm sure Debbie could speak to, but... The broad kind of thrust of the ABC's coverage of, of immigration is is rock solid.
0: If it is only being levelled as shabby journalism and they're not pointing to anything specific, is this simply dog whistling to those naysayers who don't believe in the, the function of an independent national broadcaster and getting their heckles up and... Simply dividing a nation is that is that as low as we're, we're we're fighting here is that or are they actually aiming for more are they wanting to haul the ABC in front of an independent inquiry to, um, into bias yet again?
3: Well, probably both, but neither of those are new, and mm. it's not the first time. Um, I think I think what Fergus is saying is right. I think I think the debate on this has become very skewed, so that it's it's sort of the. The normal, the default position is, oh, this is all terrible. They're all terrorists, and anything that is that, that um, diverges from that is then sort of being painted as being of a position. And so we've sort of we've somehow unbalanced the whole the whole debate. Uh, it's not a proper. Two sided debate. Look, the ABC has. Uh, it's, this is not new to the ABC, you know, and, it, and it's not new to Four Corners, and uh, I think both sides of politics have done it. And it is a difficult situation for a publicly funded public broadcaster. Uh, very difficult.
0: The ABC's Director of News, um, Gavin Morris, said the Nauruan Government wasn't approached for comment on this story because the ABC's routinely refused visitation to Nauru, and the Nauruan Government routinely refused to comment on stories about refugees. Should they have been approached for comment despite this?
3: Well, a number of points on that. Um, Firstly, until quite close to the program date, we expected to have the Australian government commenting on the program. And in our view, this is the responsibility of the Australian government primarily, and you can't fob it off onto the Nauruan government. So, of course, we wanted to speak to the Australian government. We had no reason to believe until you know, quite just a couple of days before that that wasn't going to happen. Um, secondly, that what Gavin Morris says is correct. They do say repeatedly um, that, you know, it's, it's not, they have no comment. Uh, I think if we'd been there, of course, we would have spoken to them. And in fact... Um, Before Chris Kenny, I have been there, and I went there in 2013. We got visas, and I did speak to the Nauruan government. Um, So, you know, I think if we're there, we do it. It, it, It's not all that feasible when you're trying to do it remotely and also when you're expecting, And, and I think rightly so, the responsibility for responding does lie with the Australian government in this situation.
0: You mentioned there that you had expected the government to make comment. Mr Dutton did agree to give a live interview at the end of the program. Why did you decline that offer?
3: Well, Four Corners is um, there's only one program on the ABC that's a sort of long form crafted documentary program and that's Four Corners. Um, And so we have many other outlets with live interviews. Uh, This is not the first time this situation has arisen with a politician. Um, And I think it's been arising for a very long time. Clearly, We're structuring a documentary. It's not going to work to take 10 minutes, seven minutes off the end and have, you know, an interview that may go nowhere in that seven minutes. Um, And there are many other outlets on the ABC for that to occur. And the minister was offered a live interview on Late Line, which followed the program, um, and or AM the next day, both of which were declined. So, look, this isn't the first time, and I think that, Ministers are a bit used to this. All politicians on both sides are used to this. This sort of play has occurred before. As I say, there were all those other opportunities, and the ABC should be seen as a, as a whole entity um, with many different platforms. And it's a
0: well-known
4: political tactic to chew up time with an interview that actually goes nowhere and says nothing. So, you know, it's, you know, the ABC is well aware of that.
0: Carolyn Marcus of A Current Affair and the Daily Telegraph said Four Corners ran old, random YouTube footage of locals brawling to illustrate their claims refugees are unsafe. Was the footage random?
3: No. Um, In fact, we used approximately 90 seconds of footage of violence, of which two-thirds was not on YouTube, had nothing to do with YouTube, was... Filmed, or uh, the film, if you saw the program, was of um, a brawl outside the school between two Naruan school children, um, rather large older school children, admittedly quite a violent brawl. That had nothing to do with YouTube. We know where that came from. We know when it was filmed, um, etc. The other footage was supplied to us separately, did also appear on YouTube. I haven't heard anyone saying that that detracts from its validity. Uh, It's not old. Uh, I don't know what random means in terms of footage, but it was supplied to us by somebody who knew what it was. Um, I'm not really sure what the point of that criticism is. I (laughs) Perhaps Carolyn Marcus was then in the same piece they then suggested we should have used their footage and it was strange that we hadn't used footage from a current affair so it's of sort course of...
0: the current affair was one of the few media outlets that was granted access to Nauru not long ago. That's right so I yeah. think it's
3: damned if you do and damned if you don't I'm not, I'm not quite sure.
0: You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Marcus Costello, and I'm speaking with Debbie Whitmont, Margot Saville and Fergus Hunter. Foreign journalists' access to Syria is severely restricted, but last week the regime of Bashar al-Assad extended an unusual invitation to a group of Western reporters to visit Damascus, including reporters from NPR, The Washington Post, The New Yorker and The New York Times. Several analysts on the war in Syria have criticised those who chose to partake in the weekend conference, calling it a PR exercise. The British Syrian Society claims the conference was a neutral event to, quote, facilitate a better understanding of a very complicated crisis. But Chris Doyle of the Council of British Arab Understanding told The Guardian, quote, The regime is trying to energise its public diplomacy and public outreach in Britain. They're trying to maintain this as a neutral conference. It's simply not. The speakers are senior regime figures, plus others who are extremely supportive. Debbie, one of the main criticisms is that many figures sympathetic to Syrian government were speaking at the conference. What journalistic value is there in covering a conference like this one?
3: if you contextualise it, I don't really see a problem. I think what happened here was that the photos that were posted of some of the journalists um, enjoying lavish dinner at the um, outside the conference that was in poor taste and so then people said, oh, well, look at them, they're sort of living it up and people are being bombed, so... That then casts the rest of the conference in a different light. If you contextualise it, if you point out who has organised it, if it's an opportunity to actually attempt, whether you succeed or not, in asking some questions or finding out something about the regime, um, as long as you're as revealing as you can be, in my view, about what the role of that conference might be. Uh, I was thinking this afternoon, you know, is there a conference I wouldn't go to, like the Ku Klux Klan annual conference? I'd go to that. Would you go? Oh, yeah, definitely. (laughs) No, no, I
4: think it would be really interesting and entertaining.
3: Do you think you might be sort of promoting their cause, though? Would would you need to have a sort of reason, like uh, um, some context to set it in, or would you just go and they're obviously doing a PR job, you know,
4: I just think it would be so valuable to be able to write about the Ku Klux Klan having seen them up close.
1: Some I think you'd cr- do a great
3: <laughs> job, Margaret. And, <laughs> and I would have the-
1: gone, you know, I would have gone to this conference, you know, in, in a in a heartbeat. You know, that's the thing. Yeah, I just too. don't understand this criticism. It's all these journalists, they're from, you know, they're from NPR, they're from the New York Times, they're from the London Times. They're going in eyes wide open. They know what's going on. Exactly. They're going to apply their filter. They're going to get valuable substantive information for their readers. And there's, there's, massive value in that
3: and of course the whole of the middle east is all about i mean there's a lot of coded messaging going on in the middle east and and i reported from the middle east and and you get you get you know a leader talking to their domestic audience to their international audience to various different audiences and that is always part of the context of any event like that and and i think people are not silly and they report reported in that way
4: And I think there's a long history of journalists being taken on a group tour somewhere and actually slipping the bounds of their captors and going and finding other stories to write about. You know, it happens all the time.
1: And what a great opportunity to access some of those senior government figures that are part of this kind of murderous, genocidal regime. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure of the situation, but I doubt they're, you know,
3: incredibly
1: readily available.
0: That's it for us today on 4th Estate. So thank you so much for joining us, Debbie Whitmore. Thank you. And Margaret Sappel, thank you. Thank you. And um, Fergus, thank you so much for joining us on the phone. Thanks a lot. My name's Marcus Costello. Catch us at the same time next week.